nice to see you all. Glad you could stop by for this very special Monday episode of Rising. Brianna, hello, how was your weekend? My weekend was great. I threw a 40th birthday party for my brother, has him out of, uh, out of town guests in, and so I'm feeling refreshed energized and ready to take on the news of the day. Fantastic. I was uh, in Memphis for a, uh, a conference, Freedom Fest, and I got to meet some of our regular guests on our show. Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger were both there, so uh, that was very nice. Also, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who I was able to hear speak. And in fact, that is what we are talking about in our A Block, some uh, controversial remarks that he made uh, a few days ago that we want to get into. Take it away. Well, uh, 2024 Democratic challenger, of course, Robert F. Kennedy, has been accused of anti-Semitism after the New York Post first wrote a report alleging Kennedy claimed that COVID-19 was a genetically engineered bioweapon that could have been quote, ethnically targeted to prevent deaths of Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese people during a press event at an Upper East Side restaurant last week. The Post writes of Kennedy's remarks, COVID-19, there is an argument that it is ethnically targeted. COVID-19 attacks certain races disproportionately, Kennedy said. COVID-19 is targeted to attack Caucasians and black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese. We don't know whether it was deliberately targeted or not, but there are papers out there that show the racial or ethnic differential and impact, Kennedy added. The Post, Jonathan Levine, then posted video of the encounter. Here's the first part of that. And we need to talk about bioweapons. I know a lot now about bioweapons because I've been doing a book on it for the past two and a half years. And, um, uh, and you know, the, the, what we, the technology that we now have to develop these microbes, we have we've put hundreds of millions of dollars into uh, ethnically targeted microbes. The Chinese have done the same thing. In fact, COVID-19, there's an argument that it is ethnically targeted. COVID-19 attacks certain races um, disproportionately. The, uh, the, 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 the races that are most immune, immune to COVID-19 are because of the, of the structure of the, of, um, the genetic structure, of, uh, uh, genetic differentials among different races of the, um, of the receptors of the ACE2 receptor. Um, COVID-19 is targeted to attack uh, Caucasians and, uh, and, uh, and uh, black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and, uh, and Chinese. And here's the second part of that video. We don't know whether it was deliberately targeted that or not, but there are papers out there that show the, you know, the, um, the racial and ethnic differential and of impact to that. We do know that the Chinese are spending hundreds of millions of dollars developing ethnic bioweapons, and we are developing ethnic bioweapons. That's where all those labs in the Ukraine are about. They're collecting Russian DNA, they're collecting Chinese DNA, so that we can target people by race. Now, we did invite Levine on the show, but he passed on that invitation. If he changes his mind, of course, he is welcome to come and talk to us. Kennedy has strongly denounced the Post's take on his comments, tweeting that the New York Post story is mistaken. I've never, ever suggested that the COVID-19 virus was targeted to spare Jews. I accurately pointed out during an off-the-record conversation that the U.S. and other governments are developing ethnically targeted bioweapons and that a 2021 study of the COVID-19 virus shows the COVID-19 
appears to disproportionately affect certain races since the fur and cleavage docking site is most compatible with blacks and Caucasians and least compatible with ethnic Chinese, Finns and Ashkenazi Jews. In that sense, it serves as a kind of proof of concept for ethnically targeted bioweapons. I do not believe and never imply that the ethnic effect was deliberately engineered. The, that study is here. And then he did, in fact, link to that study. Dr. Monica Gandhi, professor of medicine and infectious disease at the University of California, San Francisco, told The Post, no, I don't see any evidence that there was any design or bioterrorism that anyone tried to design something to knock off certain groups. Journalist Michael Schellenberger points out that RFK Jr. was right to raise the alarm about China's bioweapons program and the debate over bioweapons research, which includes research into vaccines to protect against them, and that that's long overdue. Author of the public substack, Michael Schellenberger, will be on with us tomorrow to discuss this more in depth. Hmm. So obviously this gen has generated uh, furious media coverage, denunciation, more of the, you know, RFK Jr. is a coup, crazy person, saying all these crazy things. Um, I, I think it's important to note the New York Times has a, a write-up of this, you know, debunking the claims he made there. Uh, claims by the which he said, RFK Jr. said there's an argument for these things, right. not necessarily that, that he's endorsing them. the right. argument. The study he links to, the, so the New York Times points out in this article, well, this, first of all, this article, this, this scientific journal entry doesn't make this claim about Ashkenazi Jews. It's not in there. But if you read down the whole story now, at the end, there's a little correction saying, oh, actually, I'm sorry, it does, in fact, say yeah, the, Ashkenazi Jews in there. The, the article, I mean, whatever you want to say about RFK Jr., he tends to be lawyerly and precise about the language he uses. And it can go both ways, right? There is a way that you can say, well, technically, I didn't say I believe this, mm -hmm. but we should be generally concerned about bioweapons. We should be concerned about COVID. There is a paper that shows that mm -hmm. the Furon cleavage site doesn't uh, exist in Ashkenazi Jews without actually tying them all together into an argument that COVID was a bioweapon that was designed to spare. Spare is the word that the media keeps using, but that RFK Jr. did not use, mm -hmm. to spare uh, Ashkenazi Jews. And then there's another way that this is being characterized as um, the other racial groups that are also implicated in his statements, Chinese people, uh, the Finns, black people, are being kind of shut out of this conversation. To characterize it, I think, as, a, as, a, as him saying something very specific about mm -hmm. um, Jewish people being spared this disease in a way that taps into stereotypes, right? Because there's historical anti-Semitic stereotypes. There's a long history of blaming the Jewish people right. for yeah, for the the Black Plague, right? You can go sure. back to medieval Middle Ages times, and so I think people ought to be very careful, yeah, uh, because certainly there is anti-Semitism out there. There's also anti-Chinese sentiment, yes. etc. And that you know we're not <laughs> people races are not responsible for COVID-19 or other pandemics. Um, we are trying to get to the bottom of of who is responsible. Um, there is a theory that really, I mean, no one is responsible. It arose in natural animal spillover. And there's a theory that there are specific people responsible, right. people who funded dangerous research in unsafe lab conditions. This impugns our government. It impugns the Chinese government. It is certainly not, it's not race-specific at all and shouldn't be made race-specific. Right. So I, I understand people's um, frustration with going in that direction. Um, but the, the study did. It, it is it is possible to have yeah. diseases that affect people based on we, where they. I mean, sickle cell anemia, right, is uh, more of course, affects Sachs black disease. people. Yeah, um, that, like that uh, is a reality. Cystic fibrosis. Yes, uh, but what's so funny and not funny, but the irony is that 
Democrats in the early days of the pandemic were so sensitive to the disproportional effects that it was having on specifically black and brown communities, specifically the black community. Right. Like black people, were, this, it's like a known known. It's, it's in fact, right. the progressive thing to point out that black people were disproportionately dying from COVID. And there's a whole host of reasons that you can attribute to that. Black people in the U.S., in, though, in right? The US. In, in Africa right. did not have right. a particularly bad time with right, COVID, exactly. right? So it's like a pre-existing condition issue. Yeah. It's a some maybe a, having low Poverty, vitamin obesity. D before contracting COVID predicts bad uh, health comes. All of these kinds of things go into it. But there's not there was never the implication that pointing that out meant that you were Racist, right? right? And th you know, so there, there is this. Interesting well, you're allowed to point out racial differences until you're not. <laughs> that, that's, I that's what's a little, a little confusing about this one. I, so again, I think that him yada yada yadaing, like saying a series of things in a row, without even though if he technically didn't say mm -hmm. this, you know, the 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 vaccine, sorry, the, the the virus was designed to target this population, and we know it was a bioweapon. Obviously, putting things out there in a in a sequence might lead people to that conclusion. And if you want to very strongly say that you're not drawing any conclusions, that you're just saying that these are things that people should be concerned about more broadly, then you should probably make that clarification. And now he has. And the media is not interested in that, probably for the same reason that the media is not interested in giving him a lot of grace in other circumstances. But I do think he has to take responsibility on sometimes using lurely language in a way to say technically truthful things that could be taken out of context in a way that is is inaccurate and potentially even dangerous. That being said, there are people who are acting as though the possibility of the development of bioweapons is the crazy part, that the scientific study that shows that certain ethnic groups don't have this fearing cleavage site is the crazy part. The Amish mm -hmm. is, were part of his statement as well, and they're being kind of erased from this because I, I think the idea of there being a specific ethnic attack on the Amish isn't as kind of sexy in the media play as obviously charges of anti-Semitism, which for obvious reasons people are very sensitive to, and they should be. But it, it, the, the way this is being framed, the repeated use of the, of the um, phrase, he said it would spare the Jews. It almost feels like the media is creating language that will make it mm -hmm. more make, make what he said more controversial than it is. But I don't think that's necessary to have some critique of his slipperiness with some of these theories here. Sure. And we can't just try on the whole bio weapon, the labs. Um, Michael Schellenberger, in his post about this, and I can't wait to talk more about this with him tomorrow, you know, points out all the exceptions in official international laws that govern wh whether you can have um, deadly pathogens in labs. There's all these kinds of exceptions. Obviously, we can't just trust, we know, unfortunately, we can't just trust the scientific community not to go meddling in things they, they shouldn't meddle with. You know, Barack Obama paused the gain-of-function research, decided this was too dangerous and it can't be done anymore, and Fauci signed off on them doing it anyway, because there was some technical language for exceptions, national security exceptions. Mm -hmm. You can drive a Mack truck through uh, through the hole created by those. Right. So it's just like... I, so I don't believe I don't, you're not crazy if you just if you if you're not going to take for granted the word of of the U.S. health officials or the WHO that oh no this is never being done and there's nothing there's no kind of dangerous pathogens being held anywhere like we know that's not true yes I, in fact I was trying we to look into this and and read some of the articles that um, RFK Jr. was uh, referencing for to support 
what he was saying about the existence of this cleavage site in some groups versus others, and then to look at counter evidence in other kinds of medical journals. And I found one report from 2020 that was making the case for why COVID-19 was not a bioweapon, but the article was making two uh, two points in tandem, that it wasn't a bioweapon and that it also could not possibly have been lab leak theory. And so at that point, you're like, well, I, I wish we lived in a world where I could say, oh, here's the scientific consensus, and it's unimpeachable, and they're never wrong, and all this stuff. And I could just say, well, RFK Jr. is obviously wrong about this, or, or what have you. But that's not the way it works. That's yeah. not the way science has ever worked. That's, I mean, consensus, consensus can build over time, but it's why we use the word theory in the scientific context. Um, and I, I do worry, like I, I do, I have some empathy for the idea of wanting to say, hey, bioweapons research, generally speaking, is something that's scary and that is ongoing. We're having a national conversation about whether to send weapons that we know are deeply dangerous to children, cluster bombs, and to civilians across the world. And there's no, there's no skepticism <laughs> about what those can do, and we're doing it anyway, and we're being gaslit about the wisdom of yes, that. So in, in that context, people are going to be curious about these kinds of issues. And I do think when you're having... The paper record shut it down. The New York Times writing these pieces that they have to immediately offer corrections on because it turns out that RFK Jr. wasn't pulling all of this out of his behind. We, that, uh, that author we had on a couple weeks ago who wrote that book about lab leaks in general, she said something so interesting, which was that in past lab leaks, even if they happen in like, the, 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 um, was it, the anthrax in the Soviet Union, when that happens, the, of course, the government tries to cover it up and says it didn't come out of a lab. And then scientific experts in, the, in this community of researchers, even who are not on the payroll of that government but are, are elsewhere, it, 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 maybe even rival governments, will back up the idea that it was not a lab leak because they don't want they have the same incentives to say it did right. not emerge from a lab. Right. And that is, I think, and that's happened over and over again. And yeah. that's, that's why we can't just intrinsically trust everything we hear from these people every single time without a little bit of skepticism and pushback. Yeah, yeah. Well, RFK Jr. also tweeted this on the matter. How devious are the MSM attack dogs? Here is the question New York Post Jonathan Levine asked my press office. What do you say to critics who might think saying coronavirus was a bioweapon made to kill white and black but spare Jews might be anti-Semitic? Kennedy also demanded that the Post apologize and retract the, quote, inflammatory article. He then shared a video with Rabbi Shmuley. I saw, I don't answer the phone on the Sabbath, I saw that my phone was exploding with messages, ding, ding, ding over the Sabbath. I saw that the reason I was getting these messages is that my good friend Robert Kennedy Jr. was quoted by various publications as allegedly saying that the COVID-19 vaccine was a bioweapon. And I saw that Jewish groups started condemning him as an anti-Semite. I should say, Jonathan Levine, the reporter here for the New York Post, is a friend of mine. I know him. He's done a lot of good work in the past. Uh, from a journalistic standpoint, I don't know what the setup of this event was. RFK Jr. has said it was like off the record right. and implied that this was breaking some kind of protocol. Right. Um, I don't know specifically what happened here. There often it is the case, right, though, that a, a person will say something and later say, oh, by the way, this is off the record. You have to clarify from sure. a journalistic standpoint off the record first. Um, again, I, I know this reporter, and I would think he'd be pretty careful with this, so I cannot speak to, like, the journalistic aspect of this. It may very well be that while they had wished it was off the record, it was not set up as an off-the-record sure. interview. So I, I do just have to put that out. Yeah, but it, it's also worth noting that I think I saw a lot of left criticism that was almost as frustrated or more frustrated with RFK Jr. for choosing, again, to 
foreground Rabbi Shmuley with his politics that are, I think, fairly characterized explicitly as Zionist and not especially sensitive to the interests and needs of uh, Palestinian people, and the continued relationship between RFK Jr. and Rabbi Shmuley, recall, obviously, that um, uh, this, he, was, he was deployed during his last gaffe. I wouldn't—I don't think it's a gaffe, but when he initially— uh, uh, threw some support behind Roger Waters of Pink Floyd uh, for some of his politics, and then was also accused of anti-Semitism uh, anti for that. He did a tete-a-tete -tete with Rabbi Shmuley as part of his rehabilitation campaign, and the left was, at that point, um, skeptical if he could really advance left interest in the region if he is picking allies and bedfellows like uh, with someone as, as conservative as uh, Rabbi Shmuley is. I also just want to say that last quote that we read, um, the, the framing from uh, uh, the, uh, the Post, what do you say to critics who might think saying coronavirus was by a weapon made to kill white and black despaired Jews might so be anti-Semitic? when did you stop eating your wife? Exactly. Also, the argument, if you want to characterize this argument, was that coronavirus was, a, was potentially a bioweapon that, that disproportionately affects whites and blacks, but disproportionately doesn't affect Jewish people, Chinese people, and Amish people, and Finnish people. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it does feel like it's being weighted in a way that is suspicious. I mean, like, if, you, if you have Finnish an supremacy issue— I mean, that's, that's <laughs> Coming for us all. And, I, and again, I understand why. There are these anti-Semitic tropes, but, you know, it, it doesn't do anything to the idea that he might have been talking about science, that he, all of these groups were included. Mm -hmm. In addition to Ashkenazi Jews, what about Sephardic Jews? What role does that play in the argument that this is an anti-Semitic trope? And also, are we concerned that it keeps being characterized as the the as him saying the virus was designed to spare those groups, as opposed to the design? The, I think the implication is it was designed to spare the people who ostensibly allegedly made it, the Chinese, right. and that there might be an incidental effect on other groups. Like, I don't—I mean, it's the argument that they were like, we got to save the Amish from the coronavirus. I mean, it just—the logic is all over the place, and this starts to feel like a little bit of a messy Very argument. Messy. I don't want to use smear, but like a little yeah. bit of a messy argument that might be politicized more than it would be if he were somebody else. Yep. Well, that's our take. Let us know how you think about this controversy, if it is indeed a controversy, and we'll continue talking about it, I'm sure, later this week. <laughs> we'll have more Rising right after this. An ex-Trump official is accusing Anthony Fauci of intentionally covering up the origins of COVID-19 after bits and pieces emerged from a now heavily redacted letter that Fauci penned in 2020. The unredacted part seemed to reveal Fauci believed the novel coronavirus did in fact start as gain-of-function research in a lab, a point which former State Department investigator Dr. David Asher says was a cover-up. Here he is on with Fox News host Martha McCullum on Friday. Let's watch. It's a cover-up. I mean, we, you know, we've been talking about this uh, without being able to see the documents uh, up close and personal for two years now. Uh, and thank you for your support uh, uh, following the the, uh, the story to where it's gotten today. Uh, but there's a heck of a lot more that the Republican uh, uh, investigators on that uh, COVID subcommittee have uncovered. 
uh, they've gotten through the, all the private communications of all the scientists orchestrated by Fauci to draft this proximal origins paper uh, that uh, concluded that uh, beyond a, a reasonable doubt this thing came from nature. Those scientists among themselves uh, with uh, Fauci looped in as far as uh, their, uh, the essence of the communications as of like the 20th of February, we're still saying that it was at least 50 to 75 percent uh, bioengineered. I mean, so they were even reje essentially rejected initially by the Nature uh, Medicine magazine or journal because they were suggesting it might have not come from nature. Well, the House Select Committee on the Coronavirus Pandemic released the letter on Friday. In it, Fauci not only revealed that it would have been unusual for such a viral sequence to have evolved naturally from bats and that it might have been done intentionally, well, he also added that there was, quote, considerable discussion. Some of the scientists felt more strongly about this possibility. Two others felt differently, but they felt it was entirely conceivable that it could have evolved naturally with these mutations. So that was, um, so this is, I, I think, incredible and, you know, yet more evidence mm -hmm. that there was this rush to spin things uh, as the pandemic was getting underway. Dr. Fauci has has tried to, you know, fra frame these disclosures well. I initially thought, yeah, oh, no, maybe it would have come from a lab. But then, you know, the 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 even more expert than I people who looked at this said, no, it really does look like it arose naturally. That was his, that's been his explanation. So there's nothing to see here. But we've now seen all these emails that show how he um, helped, guided, pushed those scientific experts to reach exactly that conclusion. Um, in, in many of those emails, uh, kind of leading them there, I, I think, in a, in a way that was, um, to have a take that was stronger than their actual initial inclinations. Um, and then also all these messages we're seeing about them raising exactly the kind of the concerns you would expect them to have, which is, well, if this came from a lab, this is going to be very bad for us in terms of um, uh, for their scrutiny for research. Um, suggest there's the, there's the national security aspect, because they suggest that even conceding it's possible it came from a lab even accidentally would make the Chinese government very mad, they mm -hmm. thought. Mm -hmm. um, so this is all very troubling. I mean, part of what feels like a bombshell about this sort of revelation is reflecting on how dangerous it seemed at the time to even acknowledge that lab leak was a possibility. Mm -hmm. And again, it's the gap between scientists here who are genuinely considering the alternative, that For it was sure. lab leak. And, and to be clear, this this email is not definitively saying, oh, gosh, we know it's lab leak, but we've got to keep no, it it's public. Not. It's nothing like that. It's not. It's saying that some scientists feel very strongly that it's lab leak, some scientists feel differently, treating the lab leak possibility as a legitimate theory. But that in and of itself feels like a big deal for those who were gaslit for so long about the possibility that lab leak could have been the case and that it wasn't just a free conspiracy theory um, that only yes. like, weirdos on the internet were engaging with. And I was noticing even to date, I, I, because we talk about it so much in the context of this program, it feels very normalized. And with the, um, you know, with the reports from various government agencies that now believe that it's more likely or not that it was lively, it feels very much more normalized. I, I still come across parts of the internet regularly where folks treat discussion of lab leak like you're a crazy person. 
And I'm reminded ab about why email, uh, email releases like this do feel like bombshells. And it's, it's because of that sentiment, that, that pervasive sentiment, that even having discussions about some issue areas like, like lab leak theory can make you persona non grata. It's a little bit uh, similar to the Hunter Biden laptop situation in which a class of experts made yeah. conclusions or, or put forth conclusions that were too strong. And then the then the media reported on those conclusions in even stronger terms, right? Right, because the 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 FB, the former national security agents who put out that letter they said the Hunter Biden laptop story looks like. It, it reminds us of Russian right. disinformation. Not that it was, not that they were telling you that it was, but here are the reasons it looks like that to them. And then the media covered that as them saying that it was, in fact, Russian disinformation. It's a little bit like that yeah. with, uh, with lab leak stuff. And it, sh it shows you um, why there is rightly a lot of distrust, both of expert, the, the class of government advisor expert people, and then and then the mainstream media, which is, which is frankly worse in their, and how they, you know, the mainstream media people will lazily characterize everyone else as a conspiracy theorist or, or, or as misinformers, misinformation, right. but they're doing, they are misinforming you by, 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 by harping on conclusions that are actually out stronger than the conclusions of the, of the suspect expert class. Yeah, absolutely. What's part of what's so fascinating about this particular email as well is that, help me understand where this is oriented in terms of the chronology mm -hmm. of the broader group that was ultimately assembled to weigh in on the paper that ended up determining. Proximal origins, yeah. Okay. So this was a, this email was from February of, of uh, February 1st of 2020. And we quoted some of it, um, the, you know, the part where it says it's suspicion that this was lab leak was heightened by the fact that the scientists in Wuhan were known to have been working on gain-of-function experiments to determine the molecular mechanisms associated uh, with bat viruses adapting to human infection, and the outbreak originated in Wuhan. Upon considerable discussion, some scientists felt more strongly about this possibility, but two others felt differently. They felt it was entirely conceivable that this could have evolved naturally, even though these mutations had never been seen in a bat virus before. That seems like some skepticism that Fauci is interjecting back into that um, conversation. Right. The reasons uh, for each side of the argument are too complicated to bother you with. Bottom line is that they all agreed with my strong suggestion to gather an even larger group under the auspices of an internationally credible organization, probably the WHO. And that that's, should be the next steps. So this seems like genuine skepticism, even some skepticism from Fauci about people who think it could have evolved naturally. And so what, what happened between then and where we ended up, where we, we got this proximal origin paper telling right. us yeah, I think the paper came out a month or so after that. So we're really still assembling um, the timeline there. But it, it was, uh, was, I think Christian Anderson was the doctor mm -hmm. that he talked to for Proximal Origins, where we saw those messages where uh, basically Christian Anderson says to Fauci, well, yeah, I, I think it, it, giving reasons it arose naturally, but, but unwilling, not wanting to be on the record for having mm -hmm. that view. And then Fauci pushing him or goading him to commit to that view for proximal origins. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I think it looks like Fauci quickly recognized the importance of setting the tone and having the tone be um, it's, uh, it arose naturally, which again is not, it, it, it absolutely could have. We still don't know definitively either way. Of course. It could have arose, in, arose from nature. Um, it, it could have arose, again, there's a, and, and Fauci himself has now tried to say, well, 
it could have arose naturally, but because the scientists—there is this actual kind of murkier middle ground where it's not anything that was manipulated in a lab. Mm -hmm. It was something from a bat from a cave, but mm -hmm. they, but you would have never had that spread naturally unless they'd been going into caves collecting bat samples. City, yeah. So it could be that they didn't actually manipulate it necessarily. Sure. So there's a—it's a lab leak, but not gain of function, and you know what I mean? Right, We right. still don't know. We yeah. still don't know. But they so—the <laughs> conversation for, for years— was just was so definitively on the size of that of that wet market outbreak. Mm. Now we know there are cases before the wet market outbreak, mm -hmm. regardless, regardless. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, this was a fascinating revelation. We'll continue to bring any further reporting uh, for documents that give clarity to the situation. Stick around for more rising after this. Conservative host Tucker Carlson put former Vice President Mike Pence on the hot seat on Friday. Speaking at the Family Leadership Summit in Iowa, Carlson clashed with the presidential hopeful over Ukraine. Let's watch. I'm sorry, Mr. Vice President, have you, I know you're running for president. You are, distra you. You are distressed notice. that the Ukrainians don't have enough American tanks. Every city in the United States has become much worse over the past three years. Yeah. Drive around. There's not one city that's gotten better in the United States. Right. And it's visible. Our economy has degraded. The suicide rate has jumped. Public filth and disorder and crime have exponentially increased. And yet, your concern is that the Ukrainians, a country most people can't find on a map, who've received tens of billions of U.S. tax dollars, don't have enough tanks. Right. I think it's a fair question to ask, like, where's the concern for the United States in that? Well, it's not my concern. <laughs> Tucker, I've heard that routine from you before, but that's not my concern. Pence, who visited Ukraine in June and met with President Zelensky, has supported U.S. aid to the war-torn country all along and told Tucker Carlson that he would restore uh, the U.S.'s role as the, quote, leader of the free world. And uh, to be fair to him, because it does cut yeah, off there, he does say, go on to say that he, he, he supports doing both. He can walk and talk both. at the same time. Yes, he does exactly. not say, like, oh, you know, screw all U.S. cities, US cities we just got to keep funding Ukraine. Right. He says both should be done. But, uh, but the reality is that it, it is a matter of priorities and for which, uh, on a bipartisan basis, uh, very much led by uh, uh, Joe Biden and the mainstream of the Democratic Party, with m significant agreement from Republican, some Republican leaders like Mitch McConnell and intellectual leaders within the party vying for its nomination, like Mike Pence, uh, take a, take a position that Ukraine needs as much Unlimited funding for as long as it takes. Even now we're sending cluster bombs, the, these these horrible right. weapons of war that many other countries think are uh, inappropriate to use at all for because of the uh, potential for civilian deaths, um, women and children years down the line. Uh, it is a matter of priorities what we fund, and the frustration that so many people on all sides of the political aisle feel that Ukraine get they, we, we, we gave them extra money. We can't even count all right. the money we're giving them at a time when look. I, I, I take Tucker's point. I just visited Memphis for this uh, for this conference. I've never been there before. I've, I feel like I've been traveling for a lot of conferences, and every time I visit a new city. I do have there's there's a there's a kind of decay. There's a kind of there's there's a lot of homelessness. There's a lot of um, decline. Obviously, it's pandemic related. I'm not you know I'm not saying this was all on our policy makers, but how we fix it is a policy choice. So I do think that budgets are policy choices. They're policy documents that 
demonstrate one's priorities. I also do not think it's a zero-sum game between military spending and domestic spending. I think that military spending should be cut because our military does horrible things. But I also it's, I have to point out that Biden did pass an enormous infrastructure bill in 2021 that was supposed to be this bipartisan infrastructure bill that 19 Republicans voted for. 19 Republicans voted for it. So it does, I think, ring hollow to those of us on the left who hear Republicans making the But they're happy to attend point. the ribbon-cutting ceremonies when yes. those dollars are yes. spent. It's, it's, I mean, it's hilarious. Sure. And Biden, to his credit, had some good one-liners about how many Republicans are scrambling to celebrate his funding achievement that he did in spite of the, you know, domestic leaders at the, you know, the regional leader, the senator or representatives' uh, opposition to it. That being said, you know, I, I appreciate the rhetorical move that's being made here, drawing this contrast between how things are going at home and how things are going abroad. And I, I have no interest in derailing that rhetorical sleight of hand because it's useful. And I, my project is also cutting um, foreign uh, spending, uh, military spending. But I, I would urge voters to be wary of political actors who simultaneously, in the Republican Party especially, are also angling to cut the social services that also have a huge impact on how these cities are faring. There's a direct relationship that's been proven over time between bringing poverty rates down, having more affordable housing. You want to talk about a homelessness issue, we have to look at the fact that housing, the cost of uh, homes has risen, what is it, 500 percent in the last 20 years. We have to look at the fact that there isn't a single city in the United States of America where if you work a full-time, 40-hour week, minimum wage salary, you can afford a one-bedroom apartment. It's not a, we, do, we have a housing crisis, crises in places like California, not because liberals are magically hypocritical and ill um, bad-spirited, but because those are very expensive places to live because they're huge, thriving economies with a lot of rich people living there. And that's not to let the liberals there off the hook, but you have to have housing policy that actually engages with that, and not just hand-ring wildly, hand-wave wildly at the idea that somehow the money that's going to a tank in Ukraine would otherwise have been spent on affordable housing for people in San Francisco. Well, this issue uh, came up uh, in this recent um, viral video clip that uh, I thought <laughs> audiences would want to see. So on Friday, the House nearly passed the fiscal 2024 defense authorization, lawmakers voting uh, uh, 219 to 210 for the NDA, but not before provisions that would have allowed the military to pay for travel associated with abortions for service members was stripped out. Now, in a hearing last week, took place before the vote, Congresswoman Summer Lee pressed a witness over funds spent on Viagra. Let's watch. How much on average does the military spend on Viagra each year? I don't have that figure. About 41.6 million. Do you know how many bridges in my district of Pittsburgh could be repaired with that amount? About two. The rebuilding of the Fern Hollow Bridge, which of course uh, collapsed the day that President Biden happened to be coming to Pittsburgh, uh, cost about $25.3 million to rebuild. So, so I had a couple of reactions. First of all, when she, I was kind of sad when she said that would only fix two, two bridges. It cost that much money. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's pretty remarkable. Pitt, Pittsburgh, you know, it's not some random town in the middle of nowhere USA. It was a once thriving industrial center. Mm -hmm. And if you think as little of Viagra and its 
public health benefit, as so many conservatives have thought of various aspects of women's reproductive health over the years as they try to cut and deny people access to those things, then you have a good argument for how those are federal dollars not being well spent. I mean, she's raising a fundamental core hypocrisy. This is something that conservatives have done to their political benefit for a long time, which is try to find line items and bills that to the ear sound absurd and like not what their personal spending priorities are to undermine the broader public funding efforts of people on the other side of the aisle. And here Summer Lee is doing the same thing, taking a obviously non-essential health product. I, I, look, I'm happy for men to have access to Viagra. I'm, I'm frankly happy for the government to pay about it, pay for it. But not at the same time that they're trying to uh, strip essential services from other members of our American community, or at the same time that they are voting against infrastructure bills, the likes of which Biden passed back in 2001, which would fund the bridges in Pittsburgh without stripping men of Viagra. Sure. I also assume the reason it's that much money, right, is because of our very broken health care insurance system where the price of drugs can't be negotiated. So whoever makes Viagra can say, oh, it costs a zillion dollars, and that's not being paid directly. It's being paid by the insurance company, and they pay that and say, so sure, it's a zillion dollars. And then, you know, that's paid for through taxes. Uh, I Googled it really quickly. Uh, apparently, you can expect to pay 65 to $140 per tablet of brand name Viagra and 4 to 10 per tablet of sildenafil, uh, I guess an off-brand version of it. And depending on your insurance provider, some of that cost might be covered. So I do think, I mean, that is not a, that's not cheap, but I also think that part of that high price tag is just how prevalent it is and how popular the drug is. Uh, so that's neither here nor there. But I, I think that was a point well made, and I think that some really is being a, an effective legislator here. It's worth noting that Summer Lee was one of the progressives that was targeted by um, those APAC groups that were targeting progressives that had kind of some pro-Palestinian um, generalized, you know, don't kick people off their land and shoot people with impunity kinds of uh, approaches to the region. Um, and she was one of the few that survived the challenge uh, narrowly by the skin of her teeth. So from a progressive perspective, it's nice to see her doing something with that platform. Mm. We'll have more Rising right after this. Hollywood went on strike last week in the first industry-wide strike in 63 years. An anonymous studio executive reportedly told Deadline the end game is to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses. A stunning admission there. The writer strike entered its 10th week last week. Studios in the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers feel that by October, most writers will be running out of money. A high-ranking producer reportedly told Deadline that resuming talks in late October is their intention. Now, according to Deadline, the studios and streamers such as Netflix, Amazon, and Disney Plus feel that the writers could demand they restart talks before Christmas, and in that case, the companies could feel they're in a position to, quote, dictate most of the terms of any possible deal. Media man Barry Diller, who founded the Fox Broadcasting Company and USA Broadcasting, weighed in on the ongoing strikes. If, in fact, it doesn't get settled until Christmas or so, mm -hmm. then next year, there's not going to be many programs for anybody to watch. So you're going to see subscriptions get pulled, which is going to reduce the revenue of all these movie companies, television companies, the result of which is that there will be no programs. And at just the time strike is settled, that you want to gear back up, there won't be enough money. So this actually 
will have devastating effects if it is not settled soon. And the problem with settlement in this case is there's no trust between the parties. These conditions yeah. are, like don't sound like a crime to the skies, but these conditions will potentially produce a, a, an absolute collapse of an entire industry. Which, of course, is the, t the entire point here. Oftentimes, when there are these labor stoppages, which happen because the people who create enormous value for these companies uh, are not being compensated. And as he mentioned, the trust has broken down and the negotiations break down as a consequence of it. The whole point of withholding your labor is to demonstrate that but for your work, these CEOs who are complaining about how unfair this is would not be able to make the $27 million a year salaries that people like Disney CEO Bob Iger actually do in fact make. So if if you connect the dots, if the fact that writers and now sympathetically actors would cause an entire industry to be devastated, do they have a point about needing to be compensated more for their labor? Mm. Yeah, the compensation system uh, is very uh, confusing to me. We're, we're seeking a guest to have on about this issue, so I think we can both learn more about it. Because I'm seeing a lot of the, the writers you know, posting on social media saying about talking about their residuals yes. checks and how low they are, and how, but I, I don't know how to... Sometimes it's low that it's literally like pennies. Sometimes it's low like it's a couple hundred bucks. Right. Um, For a very popular show. So yeah. one of the um, accounts that has gone viral is a woman who was uh, starred on Orange is the New Black, which the uh, one of these uh, uh, corporate heads— So-so, right? Was, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the I was the a big character's fan of that name, show. yeah. Her, um, he was, the, the CEO was caught bragging about how many more people watched Orange is the New Black than Game of Thrones. These popular Netflix shows do much better. Orange is the New Black was one of the flagship— early popular Netflix shows. It ran for many, many seasons. But whereas historically, before the streaming model, residuals were apparently the bread and butter of actors being able to sustain themselves between projects and have any kind of ongoing salary, um, these days, be, uh, because the, the contracts haven't been aren't designed to accommodate for the ways that the studio executives now make money. They're basically cut out of um, even very profitable enterprises like uh, Orange is the New Black. So yes, the, the streaming, um, the residual payments are a big issue in addition to the um, questions about mm -hmm. AI and whether or not they're going to be asked to give their likeness over the, to the studios to make money from them. And, but without this, ever is, this comes down to it's difficult with streaming it's kind of difficult to tell what is that you said you described Orange is the New Black as yeah. very profitable, but it's not right. People don't pay for Orange is the New Black, right? They're paying for net. Orange is the New Black costs a certain amount of money to make. The, the profit model is maybe you're subscribing to Netflix to be able to watch it. But it's uh, my understanding of the economics, economics of streaming. It's a little hard to tell. Obviously, Orange is the New Black is very popular, but it's not like you're going to the movie, you know, we can see how much this grossed because you paid a ticket for this thing. You're paying for the entire streaming platform. So the question is really, how many more people subscribe because this program is available? And is that worth it given its cost? So I could see the economics of who's owed what of this being kind of confusing. Well, I do think that what is known is how profitable the studios are. So you, they can say, oh, it's so difficult to tell. But when you have CEOs taking home $27 million in the pay. The CEOs get paid a lot. When you but have producers and the companies being enormously profitable and the actors just not getting a piece of that action. Look, if you are an actor and you're only earning cents on the dollar uh, or you're only mm -hmm. earning you know, a couple of hundred dollars for 
yeah. a project of that magnitude, then you know, you can make an argument about how you should keep working for nothing, but who would do that at the end of the day? If it is well, true not, that the companies cannot pay you, fine. Well, the actors are not going to work, and now we're going to have this detente. Yeah, but like you brought up Bob Iger. Yeah, sure, he's maybe there. All those people are way overcompensated, yeah. sure. But like Disney Plus is not, it's losing money. It's not, it's, you know, projected to be profitable maybe by like 2024. Um, because the economics of streaming are really, like, it's not been figured out yet. Um, so anyway, I, 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 I don't know what the, it's probably the case that the contracts don't really reflect the new reality of, uh, of the streaming world. Um, yeah, I mean, Vox tried to get into this a little bit in one of their explainers, and, and they say, you know, most TV shows on streaming have far shorter seasons than their broadcast cousins, eight or ten episodes as opposed to 22 or more. And that means writers get paid less for each job. The space between seasons can also be very long on streamers, years or more, rather than the few months of a broadcast show. Significantly more writers at all levels are working for the um, um, NBA than in the past. And although there are fewer episodes in a season, streaming showrunners, the people who are ultimately in charge of managing shows and making creative decisions, are working as long as their peers and broadcast TV. But because of the way the contract is set up, their median salary is about 46% of the broadcast median. So it is does really seem like these um, structure issues, where the shorter episodes, the more time between episodes, um, and the difficulty of accounting for what it means to profit from streaming, are making it so that these contracts just have to be renego renegotiated for the modern reality right. of how TV works. But, I mean, I was just thinking, I mean, that what we play, people regretting that there's going to be a lot less new TV like the year after next or when you know within this time period they're not yeah. filming um, <laughs> I mean I got so much I'm, I'm sure I'm not only speaking for myself in that I have so many TV programs I'd like to watch that I don't have time to catch up on that like a year with nothing new being made would would not I mean are people out there really like watching the entire Netflix and Disney Plus and Hulu and HBO uh, uh, well you you things. say I, that I watch a lot of TV and I like Yellow Jackets I, I would love to watch that I haven't watched the first two seasons I haven't watched any of the shows mentioned in the New York Times article yet well it might not be a particular show that hits you maybe Yellow Jackets yeah. isn't your show or that you're already behind and you have plenty to watch but Everyone has their tipping point. Um, the, the New York Times uh, pointed out that big name shows, including Yellow Jackets, but also Severance and Stranger Things, halted work after the writer strike. This is also affecting movies with the Oppenheimer and Barbie, Barbie promotions that have caught the country by storm, grinding to a halt uh, as a consequence of the strike. Certain other shows are unaffected. I know that a, a, a show that you're a big fan of, uh, House of Dragons, is continuing because they're in a Thank British goodness. union that is separate and apart and not implicated by the strike. But um, I think, as we've reported on before, the fall lineup for many of these channels has pivoted more to reality TV sh shows and game shows that don't require the work yeah. of writers or actors at all. Is there is, is that okay with people? Maybe. But is it going to be okay for these studio execs whose profits dramatically rely on streaming uh, these uh, streaming services and people signing up for new accounts to stream new shows? Well, right, then it will, but or are people just going to continue signing up or keep paying because there's still a, such a vast library of material on all these platforms? Yeah. That's what I'm curious about. I'm not saying, I don't, I'm not saying prescriptively, I'm just, this, this straight, like, I don't know that in the case, in today's uh, reality, like our are, do the people like rise up and side with the actors and the striking writers because there's nothing new to watch or to see? 
that's just not going to be the case. Well, I don't, I don't know that it requires the people to rise up. I do think there's yeah. an enormous amount of um, solidarity here already. I saw a story about how UPS drivers driving by the, the strike, mm -hmm. uh, the strikers um, in Hollywood were honking and, and they were shouting, like, you're next, because they're also pending uh, the strike. I think August 1st mm -hmm. is their uh, date for the end of these negotiations and the potential start date. Um, so I think there is a lot of natural solidarity, but the point isn't that they need sure. us to be okay with it. Um, the mainstream media does, is doing what it's always doing, which is to talk about the effect on the consumer, as though consumers aren't workers too, that are similarly victimized by corporate greed the same way that these writers and actors are being victimized. So they're depending on getting public backlash by breaking that solidarity. However, they don't need our solidarity to be successful here. At the end of the day, either their labor is valued or it isn't. Um, and while they should act, I think it's good to support people through strike funds and to help people be able to withstand the pressure to go back to work to get whatever pennies you can get because you need to pay your mortgage, you need health insurance, you need to support your families. At the end of the day, it's the studio execs that are going to have to decide whether or not they want to pay for the benefit of these stars who people love mm -hmm. to create the shows that we love. I remember subscribing to Netflix for the first time, ironically, to watch Orange is the New Black. Mm. I remember the buzz around that show feeling left out of the zeitgeist and being very curious. And I think that was the first streaming platform that I started paying for. It was definitely one of my favorites too. Yeah, I watched the whole thing. Um, well, I think the striker should add firing Kathleen Kennedy, the head of the Star Wars universe for Disney Plus as part of their <laughs> goals. And then I would be completely on board because she's ruined it. More Rising right after this. officials arrested Rex Hewerman, a 59-year-old architect from Long Island on Thursday night in connection with the killings known as the Gilgo Beach Murders, News Nation reports. Hewerman was arrested near his New York City office, police say. Hewerman reportedly grew up on Long Island and neighbors told News uh, told News 12 he has a wife and two children, that he worked on construction, renovation projects, and whenever he was not working on job sites, he went into his office. His daughter would come into work with him. An employee of his, Damien Richards, said that to News Nation affiliate WPIX. Depending on the day, uh, like most bosses in this industry, when he's having a good day, he's all right. But when not, he's not the best person to be around, Richards reportedly said about Hewerman. Joining us now to weigh in is News Nation national correspondent Sloan Glass. Thank you for joining us, Sloan. Thank you for having me. All right, so for people who don't know the background of the timing of these murders and the um, how he came to know these women, can you start by just giving us a gloss on what happened? Yeah, absolutely. So all of these women had the same occupation. They were all sex workers and Hewerman got in contact with them using burner phones and finding ads on Craigslist. Now, for your first question about the timeline of events, all of these bodies were found between 2010 and 2011 along a stretch of Gilgo Beach. It all started when Shannon Gilbert went missing. Her mom was a huge advocate to find her, really pushed authorities. There was a lot of criticism that because these missing women had been sex workers, that police weren't actively looking into their disappearance and they got a lot of pushback. And when they were looking for Shannon, they started to uncover body after body after body. Mm -hmm. Now, there were 11 remains found in total, mm. uh, nine women, a toddler. The toddler was the child of one of the women, mm. and then also a man. 
Hewerman has been charged in the murders of three of the women, Melissa Bethark, Bethelemy, excuse me, Megan Wannerman, and Amber Costello, and he's also the prime suspect in the death of a fourth. What new information has led authorities to, uh, to pinpoint Hewerman after so long a period of time? Right. I, I think that that was the, the big question and um, what the DA really addressed during the press conference, because it had been over a decade of people in this area. I, I'm in Massapequa Park right now on Long Island, had been really scared. There was a serial killer on the loose and they weren't sure what was going on. These bodies were found in an area that a lot of people go to. And right now it's summertime. People want to go to the beach. And it, it was just terrifying. So most recently, they were able to get DNA evidence that those advancements had not existed in 2010. So Hewerman's wife's hair was found on three of these women. Hmm. And then uh, his DNA was eventually found after police had been watching him and had identified him as a suspect on a discarded pizza crust and they were able to test that. And it's not an exact match. This is not, um, it's hair DNA. So what they were able to do was to boil it down and know that it was a match to 99.9% .9 certainty that it, it, met, it met the description of the person that they were looking for. So that's one key thing. Another was a car. So Amber Costello, who is one of the victims, and he's charged in her murder. Before she disappeared, she had created this rouse with a friend where a client would come and they would, uh, the friend would appear, pretend to be an outraged boyfriend, the client would leave, but they would still get the money. After she went missing, that friend went to the authorities and talked about the person who had came to their house, the car that they had seen, and Hurman had a car that matched the description of the car. His physicality matched what the friend had said. He stands out. This is a guy who's 6'4". He's very large. And the friend had described him as an ogre. Mm. And the DA used those exact same words to describe him. Yeah, the New York Times coverage of this said that while some neighbors saw Mr. Hewerman as just another commuter in a suit, others found him to be a figure of menace. He glowered at neighbors while swinging an axe in the front yard of a low-slung, dilapidated house that parents cautioned their children to avoid on Halloween, and he was kicked out of Whole Foods for stealing fruit. We would cross the street, one neighbor said. Um, if you saw him coming, he was not someone you—he he was somebody you don't want to— approach. So on top of those kinds of physical characteristics and personality characteristics, the police found um, an arsenal, uh, an, a, an arsenal of more than 200 guns in a vault that he had downstairs in his home. Is that right? Right. So he has a permit for over 92 guns. And we watched a forensic evidence team bringing out just rifle after rifle after rifle. And they were doing that all day yesterday. Just the amount of physical evidence that they have accumulated is remarkable. But that's just looking for more details to help tie him to these cases. There, there's also the evidence that existed on his phones. You talked about him being a menace. I mean, it, it's a light word to describe this guy once you pull away the curtain. Um, he had child pornography that mm -hmm. uh, he had been searching, a lot of sadistic material 
torture related Google searches. And then he also had this obsession with the case itself. He had been Googling, mapping the Long Island murder victims, um, Googling it, the case itself. And then when a special task force was launched, he was Googling about that task force, what information they had on the Gilgo murders. So uh, frankly, some of the best evidence that investigators have is everything that he had on these burner phones. Uh, you said he had a lot of guns. Um, without being overly graphic, what is the theory of how the victims were killed? Was it with guns? No, it wasn't. And the three women who he's been charged in their murders uh, were all found in a similar matter, not only just close to each other, but their bodies had been bound the same way. Um, the, the bail application went into more detail about what he had done with those bodies, and it was just... It was gruesome, it was sadistic, and they had also all been wrapped in this camouflage burlap sack. And they think two things. One, he did that to help camouflage the remains, but also that because it's more ventilated that they would decompose sooner. And how is Hureman and his counsel responding to these charges? He's pled not guilty. They said that they are going to fight it. I mean, the evidence is just enormous against him. I, I think um, they're, what they'll probably say is the DNA evidence is not strong enough, but this case is pretty rock solid. And they went in pretty quickly. I, they're going to continue to probably press more charges against him. I think the fourth woman who he has been charged as the primary suspect in her disappearance, murder charges, the DA said, are coming soon. And who knows about the other remains that they found. There could be multiple killers. Authorities have said that in the past, but they wanted to get him quickly because watching his patterns, authorities started to think that he was going to act again soon. Mm. You, you said the uh, hair from uh, the, the wife uh, was found. Is there any indication of suspicion or knowledge on, on her part be, that's been discussed yet? No, not at this time. I think um, the implication was just, you know, we have hairs all over us. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe, um, you know, that was just something that had been on his clothing. She was also out of town every single time that these women disappeared, which is frankly, another disturbing element of mm. this, that you can map from travel logs that when his wife was out of town, these women went missing. Hmm. Sloan Glass, thank you so much for joining us to discuss this story, and I hope you'll come back for any follow-ups. Yeah, absolutely. U.S. Virgin Islands is reportedly seeking $190 million from J.P. Morgan Chase in the lawsuit over its banking relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. The case alleges that the bank financially benefited from Epstein's sex trafficking operation and failed to report, quote, suspicious financial activity, CNN writes. Hmm. The government for the U.S. Virgin Islands also said it wants J.P. Morgan Chase to implement an independent compliance consultant to prevent human trafficking and to separate its business and compliance functions, according to CNN. The Virgin Islands Department of Justice said J.P. Morgan should look into the, quote, root causes of the bank's failures in its banking relationship with Jeffrey Epstein and identifying the missed opportunities to report his criminal 
activities. So these new uh, damages amounts are a result of a, a filing um, that just happened at the end of last week. So uh, remember, we've been covering this obviously throughout, but that there was a, um, uh, a lawsuit from the victims where he agreed to pay $290 million in June of this year, Deutsche Bank settled a similar lawsuit with victims agreeing to pay $75 million uh, in May. Uh, but now this is uh, a, a, a lawsuit that's being brought on behalf of the Virgin Islands itself. It alleges mm -hmm. it's stepping in in a uh, kind of a in the in the shoes of the citizens of the, of the Virgin, uh, Virgin U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, looking for these damages that have been. The, the people of the, of, the, of the islands have been subjected to, and they're specifically saying that they're looking for this, this, this significant multi-million dollar, over $100 million amount. Now, the complaint alleges that the J.P. Morgan Chase executives had close personal relationships with Epstein and that the bank ignored red flags in order to continue doing business with them. Um, the complaint reads, each of these red flags was serious. Together, they suggest a pattern of potentially illegal conduct that should have prompted action by J.P. Morgan. And as we've discussed, we've seen the exact opposite with some of the emails that have come out in the context of these litigations, where there do seem, in fact, to have been very close relationships with various senior people at J.P. Morgan. And the allegation here is that Epstein's relationships with other very high-profile folks like Bill Gates brought them into the bank, and that the bank profited specifically $40 million from Epstein acting as a go-between and bringing high-profile clients on board. Right. The red flags are significant. They are uh, present well after the time period in which Jeffrey Epstein is publicly known to be a, a sex criminal, to have been charged and arranged a, a, a convicted, pled, you know, essentially worked out that it was <laughs> confirmed that he was involved in these horrific charges with underage uh, girls. And then they're still doing business with him, and they're still there. There's that one J.P. Morgan executive who has emails with him that describe um, very a, a very close personal relationship. Honestly, that implies even something beyond that. Um, that uh, this sort of mutual um, interest in some of the totally disgusting, perverted things yeah. that Epstein was into. Uh, and then and then his network of famous people uh, who, sh who should have known better, certainly by that time period, Bill Gates. And then and now, uh, most recently, we learned about the, uh, the, the delegate of the U.S. Virgin Islands, Stacey Plaskett, yeah. who was seeking um, to have him involved in her fundraising at, right up until a year before he died in prison. Um, just no excuse for this. Totally willing to play ball with the devil at this right. point. Right. And we, we talked about how um, there were changes to uh, U.S. Virgin law uh, that apparently Jeffrey Epstein was pushing for and right. locals were facilitating local policy. Having to do with the sex offender registry exactly. in the U.S. Virgin Islands, which I'm not a huge fan of the sex offender registry in general, but, but uh, this is a be pretty made. specifically right. agenda-driven reason by one individual to have it done. Exactly. Yeah. And you were referencing before uh, Jess Staley, who was the former J.P. Morgan Chase and Barclays executive, yeah. who was discussing Disney characters, Snow White and, and Beauty of the Beast, in a series of emails with uh, Jeffrey Epstein, and who allegedly also shared photographs of young women with the banker, uh, according I mean, to If there was ever someone documents. who, for whom the sex offender registry exists to describe, it is Jeffrey Epstein. My opposition yeah. is that there's a, there are like 
people get put on it for you know urinating in public right. and, and and for totally unsubstantiated. Right. Actually, I was covering some a reporter, a friend of mine, was covering cases in uh, in in the states and I think in Arizona where even with the, there was it was a child abuse issue where the, her kid like was playing at the park and so it's one of those neglect charges mm -hmm. but she was never charged but then the process to find out if you go on this registry is an extra legal process mm. that has nothing to do with the police mm. and they just decided to put her on it for like letting your kid play a yeah. little park. That's, yes, certainly there were abuses huge in the civil liberties problems. Right. That's just a, a tangent. But whatever you think the law should be, there. I think we can all agree that it shouldn't be yes. dictated by someone who would be implicated by the law yeah. in some of the most serious ways. So with respect to those Disney, that Disney colloquy, for those who forgot, it's interesting, uh, kind of disturbing stuff. Apparently, Staley emailed Epstein in 2010 saying, that was fun, say hi to Snow White. Um, Epstein replied, what character would you like next? Staley replied, Beauty and the Beast. And Epstein replied, well, one side is available, according to the filing. So I can't even... I was, um, was Gretel not available? I don't <laughs> it's, it seems pretty undeniable that this is a very familiar, friendly relationship. Ugh. And then so what do you... How can you continue to claim that senior officials at J.P. Morgan were completely unaware of what Epstein was doing and that they blindly um, continued this relationship with him without mm -hmm. knowing what they were potentially in, in effect facilitating. I would like to learn more about the actual, you know, what legally, how this works. This is, this is the U.S. Virgin Islands, the territory mm -hmm. is suing J.P. Morgan. So not, as you said, not, the, so if they, let's say they recoup a bunch of money from J.P. What are they, is, is this being paid out to the victims? Does this go into the territory's... Treasury? Is it yeah. ever going to get a tax break after it? Do you know what I'm, so I, you know, I'm curious I a little bit just, about? Just briefly, um, and part of why we have this, this story was rigged, um, pegged to this new filing that I think had to do with the fact that they initially had asked for um, the damages to come in the form of uh, like ta taxes. And there was some legal reason why uh, there had been a motion to dismiss on that. And so they've, I think they re-upped re their mm -hmm. the damages claim. They recharacterized their damages claim. Um, I think that's, I, I, you know, don't quote me specifically on that, but that seems to be at gloss why mm -hmm. we're getting these new numbers about what kinds of uh, money they're seeking. What happens to that money, how it's distributed, it's unclear. But what they are claiming specifically is that the bank profited $40 million specifically from Epstein and the clients that he brought from the bank. And then they're asking for another 150 in punitive damages. Hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, if they, again, if they get back that money, I would, let's make sure it's, um, you know, making whole people who were wronged by Jeffrey Epstein. Um, yeah. Well, there, there were those victim, um, the, the settlements for the victims earlier this year, but certainly... Um, I, I would hate it to enrich a government that had some members That's what in I'm it saying. Are they going to build a nicer presidential palace right. or whatever? Again, my knowledge of the U.S. Virgin Islands governmental structure <laughs> is extremely low, so don't, 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 but uh, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't want, you want to enrich people who also benefited from the relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. For sure, which does sound like, and I bet if we, if we or anyone else started looking more closely at it, it would be anomalous for it to be just Stacey Plaskett. Sure. One imagines that there are all sorts of government officials in the U.S. Virgin Islands um, who understood that Jeffrey Epstein was seeking to make this his personal fiefdom, to use and abuse people um, without, without any punishment 
or, or for as long as he could because it was financially beneficial for rich and powerful people, including the government of the U.S. Virgin Islands. Yes, I mean, we, I think we talked about um, how Epstein paid for the Skidmore tuition of the first family of the Virgin Islands. Remember oh, that's that? Right. Yes. Uh, and they had some other financial entanglements. Cecile DeJona, wife of then U.S. Virgin Islands Governor John DeJona Jr. Mm -hmm. um, sent uh, Epstein an, an email in August 2011 with the subject line, please approve attaching a $25,000 tuition bill for Skidmore College in upstate Oof. New York. I mean, yeah, on some level that could almost be, a, that's, this is like a, a scam, a double scam. Like you allow Epstein to profit himself and you and let him do whatever he wants and then later sue the bank he used to do it and take just right. did Richard But again, Coppers, it's not, but, it's not okay. this family. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and I don't think they're in office anymore, but, but I take your point for sure. Yeah. All right, more rising right after this. Former President Donald Trump isn't bothered that President Joe Biden has decided not to participate in the Democratic debates. In fact, he seems to side with Biden. Here's what he said in an interview with Fox News anchor Maria Bartiromo, aired this Sunday. Let's watch. I think they'll vote for me much more than the union leaders who are indoctrinated into the Democrat party. But no, I, I think that uh, Biden will probably be the candidate if he can make it. Well, the Democrats don't want to do debates. Uh, I know Marianne Williamson and RFK Jr. want to debate. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I, I understand why he doesn't want to do it. I mean, I, I truly understand why he doesn't want to do it. But they are, you know, there's a big difference. Although, uh, in the case of RFK, I've seen polls where he's at 20%. That's not bad. But I understand why he doesn't want to do that. Look, when you're running for office and you have, in his case, let's say he has a 30 or 40-point lead, why would he do it? Now, uh, people are going to say, well, he can't do it. I actually think he can't do it if you want to know the truth. I don't think he's capable of doing it. But why would he do it, especially because of that? Why would he do it? If he's got a 30 or 40-point lead, which is what he's got, uh, I mean, I don't think RFK expects that he's going to be debating. He's a very smart guy, by the way. I don't think he expects to be debating Biden. Remains to be seen uh, whether Trump will join his challengers on the debate stage later this month. Meanwhile, RFK Jr. isn't the only thorn in Democrats' side. Third-party candidate Cornell West might be cause for concern. A new, embassy, sorry, a new NBC News poll shows 45% of Democrats are considering backing a third-party candidate. One Twitter user posted, quote, this is what happens when you stab your own voters in the back over and over again and offer them nothing but empty promises. Now, here's Dr. West on with CNN's Caitlin Collins on NATO and Ukraine. Know how empires behave, Sister Caitlin. If Russia had missiles in Mexico and Canada, the United States government would probably blow them to smithereens because that's how empires behave. We had the same challenge in Cuba in 1962. So what we end up with with a criminal invasion. And I know some of my left-wing comrades who know it's an invasion. Criminal invasion, but a criminal invasion provoked by the expansion of NATO, which is an instrument of U.S. global power. And we have to be able to conceive of a world when, when we look at China, when we look at Russia, when we look at Ethiopia, when we look at Haiti, when we look at Brazil, we got to see precious human beings rather than these competitive nation states that are trying to devour more profits, more land, and more territory. 
And he goes on to say in that interview that Caitlin Collins then says, well, what do you support doing? You know, Donald Trump says he'll end this in one day. And he says that he would, you know, actually convene a conversation between global leaders and have a—and end the war, likely by having some concessions for Russia, including the loss of Ukrainian territory. Um, so that, that was his interview on that subject. On the, yeah. er, on the earlier, um, of course Donald Trump can't take the position that Joe Biden should have to debate RFK and Marianne Williamson because he has not said he will participate in a debate right. with the Republican challengers. Obviously, the front runner has everything to lose and very little to win from one of these That's debates. That's the theory. Ron DeSantis has fallen behind in polls. He's now around 17 percent. When asked recently, in fact, about what he attributes to his, his uh, poor showing, too, he says that people are feeling sympathetic toward Donald Trump uh, because of the uh, impeachments against him. Be that as it may, the reality is that DeSantis is not gaining in the polls. RFK Jr. has been in this race for a much shorter period of time than Ron DeSantis, but has been relatively stagnant. We'll see if this latest um, scandal he finds himself in over the coronavirus as a, as a bioweapon comments hurts him at all. But I think the most telling aspect of all of this is perhaps this poll that shows that 45 percent of Democrats are open to a third-party candidate, and that's despite the constant hand-wringing that you see from the corporate media about how we only have Donald Trump because of Jill Stein. And in, in fact, in that same um, interview with Caitlin Collins, she asks uh, Cornell West about if he's concerned about being a spoiler, and Cornell West says, you, everyone says, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. The Democratic Party, if it's if it's confused, it's, if it's frustrated about why so many of its own ranks are interested in leaving the party, they should be looking toward what they have done and whether or not they can make a pitch to the American people as to why they should continue to be Democrats instead of trying to continue to rig the field so they never have to face any real competition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when he's speaking to Caitlin Collins, one almost gets the sense—and um, I'm not trying to malign her at all— but that he's making arguments that I think are perfectly in keeping with a left progressive worldview, obviously, that there would have been a home for in the Democratic Party. And she seems, um, I'm not going to say she doesn't understand, that they're unfamiliar to her, that yes. she's not very used to dealing with them, because it's just so different from the kind of Democratic consensus that CNN is a part of manufacturing. Yes. And, um, and, and it does not involve a, a principled anti-war, anti-interventionist right. opposition whatsoever. In fact, that's whatsoever. playing into Putin's hands to talk about sure. NATO expansion is, is the line talk that's being floated out there. Um, yeah, I saw that this clip was shared by Aaron Ruper, mm -hmm. formerly of Vox. He's not with them anymore. Mm -hmm. Kind of a very lib-ish Twitter no, personality, sure. and right, all, all the comments are uh, from lib people saying— How dare he? Uh, uh, oh, Putin—it's it's Biden, Biden's fault that Putin decided to invade another country. Right. And, and, like, that's so, that's so uh, small-minded to think like that. Right. Uh, yes, it is Putin's fault. Putin did an of unconscionable, course. immoral, illegal thing, but we are allowed to talk about the circumstances that led up to that yes. step, even, even like just in a historical process, explaining how this happened. Even if, if you don't want to assign 
like moral blame or something anywhere else. It's important to understand the factors that led to this moment so that we can anticipate them and, and not have them happen again. And you can moral blame. And Dr. West, in the clip that we just watched, did assign moral blame to mm -hmm. Putin. He called it an illegal invasion. And he repeated it like 10 times as though he knows he has to caveat it up the wazoo mm -hmm. not to get accused of being So does RMK Jr. when he talks and, about and it. He and he does. So does and he still gets called a Putin puppet. It's also worth noting that uh, in that clip, Cornell West specifically says, I wish the Democratic Party would talk about poor and working class people. That's the issue. Poor and working class people who are looking to my campaign, looking for some escape from the corporate duopoly. Caitlin Collins says nothing to that because I think most people in the mainstream news media aren't prepared to talk about those kinds of problems that, frankly, neither party is accommodating especially well. And in particular with Cornell West, I think there is this anxiety that's germinating among establishment Democrats, because they understand that he has a specific appeal to black voters and black male voters more pointedly, and that that has been a group that the Democratic Party has increasingly been, been struggling with. And as he is out there saying obvious, true things about how their conditions have not improved under Democratic leadership, and that there is a certain appetite and willingness, frankly, to even risk another Donald Trump if it means finally having, holding the Democratic Party accountable instead of feeling entitled to the black vote in particular. Remember what Joe Biden said uh, to black voters who might be undecided in 2020. He said, you ain't black if you're still uh, uh, undecided at this juncture. Now, can you still say that? Can you make those kinds of arguments when someone like Cornell West is not only in the race, but after he spent three, four years not following through on the specific campaign promises that he put out there to induce black people to come and vote for him, like canceling all student debt for graduates of HBCUs, something he never even really mentioned uh, when he was actually president, completely outside of the context of the Supreme Court um, undermining his policies. It seemed like he dropped that long before he was forced to drop it by the Supreme Court because it, it seemed like an inducement to get people to turn out and vote for him specifically in Georgia. Sure. Uh, before we go, uh, I, I did want to note, I think Trump should—I I don't, I don't know that Trump should fear having to debate the other Republican candidates. Um, obviously, he debated 16 of them, or however many it was, <laughs> back in 2016, and it didn't sap any energy from his campaign whatsoever. In fact, it was probably good because— the, the spotlight is a good thing for Trump. The limelight is good. He's entertaining. He's clearly—I mean, we're beyond—we can't deny this. It's just, like, even if you despise him, he, yes. he has some kind of charisma or some kind of quality that causes a lot of a lot of people to feel intensely negative emotions toward him, to be fair, but in, especially in Republican primaries, that causes people to have a fondness for him. So I don't think he necessarily has a lot to lose. Also, they've been—the other candidates have not— you know, with the exception of, like, Chris Christie, they, they're they still not inclined to attack him, you know, even after he was defeated for the presidency, yeah. twice impeached and facing criminal charges, they're more likely to defend him. And they're going to have to do that. I mean, that's—I don't know why they wouldn't do that if they're on stage with him. They're, they're going to continue to do it. Yeah, so I, you're going to have 10 yeah. people making the case for Donald Trump in addition to Donald Trump. Well, why not do it? Yeah, I, I agree. It's not that I think that he is particularly vulnerable to them in a debate, but he also— has nothing to really gain because he's already so far ahead. I, yeah. That's that's my only point. That to the extent that there, it's going to swing your. There's only downsides. I mean, I you know, know, even if the downsides are incredibly small, when you're already winning by 60 points over the next uh, the, the closest person in the polls. I mean, I to think you, he could. What's the point? I think he could eat into um, maybe DeSantis a little but bit. But does he? He he, he, well. he truly does not need to. Oh. <laughs> DeSantis is at 17 and. 
declining. Mm -hmm. If that were to turn around, I think that the, yeah. the, the incentives would change for Donald Trump. I mean, if he avoids him and DeSantis does well in those actually early states, he'll get, he could get a boost in his poll numbers. Um, so I don't know. I, I think maybe there's, I guess, some risk, but I don't expect that it's going to hurt him very much if he chooses to do debates at some point. Yeah. More rising right after this. President Donald Trump isn't bothered that President Joe Biden has decided not to participate in the Democratic debates. In fact, he seems to side with Biden. Here's what he said in an interview with Fox News anchor Maria Bartiromo, aired this Sunday. Let's watch. I think they'll vote for me much more than the union leaders who are indoctrinated into the Democrat Party. But no, I, I think that uh, Biden will probably be the candidate, if he can make it. Well, the Democrats don't want to do debates. Uh, I know Marianne Williamson and RFK Jr. want to debate. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I, I understand why he doesn't want to do it. I mean, I, I truly understand why he doesn't want to do it. But they are, you know, there's a big difference. Although, uh, in the case of RFK, I've seen polls where he's at 20%. That's not bad. But I understand why he doesn't want to do it. Look, when you're running for office and you have in his case, let's say he has a 30 or 40 point lead. Why would he do it? Now, uh, people are going to say, well, he can't do it. I actually think he can't do it, if you want to know the truth. I don't think he's capable of doing it. But why would he do it? Especially because of that, why would he do it? If he's got a 30 or 40 point lead, which is what he's got, uh, I mean, I don't think RFK expects that he's going to be debating. He's a very smart guy, by the way. I don't think he expects to be debating Biden. Remains to be seen uh, whether Trump will join his challengers on the debate stage later this month. Meanwhile, RFK Jr. isn't the only thorn in Democrats' side. Third-party candidate Cornell West might be cause for concern. A new, embassy, in, in, sorry, a new NBC News poll shows 45% of Democrats are considering backing a third-party candidate. One Twitter user posted, quote, this is what happens when you stab your own voters in the back over and over again and offer them nothing but empty promises. Now, here's Dr. West on with CNN's Caitlin Collins on NATO and Ukraine. Know how empires behave, Sister Caitlin. If Russia had missiles in Mexico and Canada, United States government would probably blow them to smithereens because that's how empires behave. We had the same challenge in Cuba in 1962. So what we end up in with a criminal invasion. I know some of my left-wing comrades who know it's an invasion. Criminal invasion, but a criminal invasion provoked by the expansion of NATO, which is an instrument of U.S. global power. And we have to be able to conceive of a world when, when we look at China, when we look at Russia, when we look at Ethiopia, when we look at Haiti, when we look at Brazil, we got to see precious human beings rather than these competitive nation states that are trying to devour more profits, more land, and more territory. And he goes on to say in that interview that Caitlin Collins then says, well, what do you support doing? You know, Donald Trump says he'll end this in one day. And he says that he would, you know, actually convene a conversation between global leaders and have a and end the war likely by having some concessions for Russia including the loss of Ukrainian territory um, so that that was his interview on that subject on the yeah. on the earlier um, of course Donald Trump can't take the position that Joe Biden should have to debate 
RFK and Marianne Williamson because he has not said he will participate in a debate right. with the Republican challengers. Obviously, the front runner has everything to lose and very little to win from one of these debates. That's the theory. Ron DeSantis has fallen behind in polls. He's now around 17 percent. When asked recently, in fact, about what he attributes to his, his uh, poor showing, too, he says that people are feeling sympathetic toward Donald Trump uh, because of the uh, impeachments against him. Be that as it may, the reality is that DeSantis is not gaining in the polls. RFK Jr. has been in this race for a much shorter period of time than Ron DeSantis, but has been relatively stagnant. We'll see if this latest um, scandal he finds himself in over the coronavirus as a, as a bioweapon comments hurts him at all. But I think the most telling aspect of all of this is perhaps this poll that shows that 45 percent of Democrats are open to a third-party candidate, and that's despite the constant hand-wringing that you see from the corporate media about how we only have Donald Trump because of Jill Stein. And in, in fact, in that same um, interview with Caitlin Collins, she asks uh, Cornell West about if he's concerned about being a spoiler, and Cornell West says, you, everyone says, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. The Democratic Party, if it's if it's confused, it's if it's frustrated about why so many of its own ranks are interested in leaving the party, they should be looking toward what they have done and whether or not they can make a pitch to the American people as to why they should continue to be Democrats instead of trying to continue to rig the field so they never have to face any real competition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when he's speaking to Caitlin Collins, one almost gets the sense, um, and I'm not trying to malign her at all, but that he's making arguments that I think are perfectly in keeping with a left progressive worldview, obviously, that there would have been a home for in the Democratic Party. And she seems, um, I'm not going to say she doesn't understand, that they're unfamiliar to her, that yes. she's not very used to dealing with them, because it's just so different from the kind of Democratic consensus that CNN is a part of manufacturing. Yes. And, um, and, and it does not involve a, a principled anti-war, anti-interventionist right. opposition In fact, that's whatsoever. playing into Putin's hands to talk about sure. NATO expansion is, is the line talk that's being floated out there. Um, yeah, I, I saw that this clip was shared by Aaron Ruper, mm -hmm. formerly of Vox. He's not with them anymore. Mm -hmm. Kind of a very lib-ish Twitter for personality sure. and right all, all the comments are uh, from lib people saying how dare he uh, uh, oh Putin it's it's Biden Biden's fault that Putin decided to invade another country right. and, and like that's so that's so uh, small-minded to think like that right uh, yes it is Putin's fault Putin did an unconscionable immoral illegal thing but we are allowed to talk about the circumstances that led up to that yes. step, even even like just in a historical process, explaining how this happened. Even if, if you don't want to assign like moral blame or something anywhere else, it's important to understand the factors that led to this moment so that we can anticipate them and, and not have them happen again. And you can assign moral blame. And Dr. West, in the clip that we just watched, did assign moral blame to mm -hmm. Putin. He called it an illegal invasion, and he repeated it like ten times, as though he knows he has to caveat it up the wazoo. Mm -hmm. not not to get accused of being so does Putin's RFK puppet. Jr. when he talks and, about and it, he and does, so does and he still gets called a Putin puppet. It's also worth noting that uh, in that clip, Cornell West specifically says, "I wish the Democratic Party would talk about 
poor and working class people. That's the issue. Poor and working class people who are looking to my campaign, looking for some escape from the corporate duopoly. Caitlin Collins says nothing to that because I think most people in the mainstream news media aren't prepared to talk about those kinds of problems that, frankly, neither party is accommodating especially well. And in particular with Cornell West, I think there is this anxiety that's germinating among establishment Democrats because they understand that he has a specific appeal to black voters and black male voters more pointedly, and that that has been a group that the Democratic Party has increasingly been, been struggling with. And as he is out there saying obvious, true things about how their conditions have not improved under Democratic leadership, and that there is a certain appetite and willingness, frankly, to even risk another Donald Trump if it means finally having holding the Democratic Party accountable instead of feeling entitled to the black vote in particular. Remember what Joe Biden said. Uh, to black voters who might be undecided in 2020, he said, you ain't black if you're still uh, uh, undecided at this juncture. Now, can he still say that? Can he make those kinds of arguments when someone like Cornell West is not only in the race, but after he spent three, four years not following through on the specific campaign promises that he put out there to induce black people to come and vote for him, like canceling all student debt for graduates of HBCUs, something he never even really mentioned uh, when he was actually president completely outside of the context of the Supreme Court um, undermining his policies. It seemed like he dropped that long before he was forced to drop it by the Supreme Court, because it, it seemed like an inducement to get people to turn out and vote for him specifically in Georgia. Sure. Uh, before we go, uh, I, I did want to note, I think Trump should—I I don't, I don't know that Trump should fear having to debate the other Republican candidates. Um, obviously, he debated— 16 of them, or however many it was, <laughs> back in 2016, and it didn't sap any energy from his campaign whatsoever. In fact, it was probably good because the, the spotlight is a good thing for Trump. The limelight is good. He's entertaining. He's clearly—I mean, we're beyond the—we can't deny this. It's just, like, even if you despise him, he, yes. he has some kind of charisma or some kind of quality that causes a lot of, a lot of people to feel intensely negative emotions toward him to be— Fair, but in, especially in Republican primaries, that causes people to have a fondness for him. So I don't think he necessarily has a lot to lose. Also, they've been uh, the other candidates have not, you know, with the exception of like Chris Christie, they they're still not inclined to attack him. Yet even after he was defeated for the presidency, yeah. twice impeached and facing criminal charges, they're more likely to defend him, and they're going to have to do that. I mean, that's I don't know why they wouldn't do that. If they're on stage with him, they're, they're going to continue to do it. Yeah, so I, you're going to have 10 yeah. people making the case for Donald Trump in addition to Donald Trump. Well, why not do it? Yeah, I, I agree. It's not that I think that he is particularly vulnerable to them in a debate, but he also has nothing to really gain because he's already so far ahead. I, yeah. that's, that's my only point, that to the extent that they're, it's going to swing your – there's only downsides. I mean, I you know, know, even if the downsides are incredibly small, when you're already – Winning by sixty points over the next uh, the the closest person in the polls I mean, I to think you. He could, what's the point? I think he could eat into um, maybe DeSantis a little. But bit does he, if he? He he, well, he truly does not need to. Well. <laughs> DeSantis is at seventeen and declining. Mm -hmm. If that were to turn around, I think that the, yeah. the, the incentives would change for Donald Well, I mean, Trump. if he avoids him and DeSantis does well in those actually early states, he'll get he could get a boost in his poll numbers. Um, so, I don't know. I, I think maybe there's, I guess, some risk, but I don't expect that it's going to hurt him very much if he chooses to do debates at some point. Yeah. More rising right after this. The sound of freedom.
Freedom, a movie hailed by conservatives about a former government agent's pursuit to rescue child sex trafficking victims. Well, it took home the number two spot at the box office this weekend, earning $27 million from Friday to Sunday and over $85 million overall since it opened in theaters on July 4th. This is according to Box Office Mojo. The film is based on the true story of Tim Ballard, a former Department of Homeland Security agent who tries to save children who have been sex trafficked. However, Ballard reportedly has not claimed to conduct a mission exactly like the one in the film, but the movie ends with a montage from Ballard's organization's real missions in Colombia. The film stars Jim Cavazel, who has expressed openness to QAnon or related conspiracy theories in the past. Some anti-sex trafficking advocates have said the movie represented a legitimate problem. I'm, uh, I've, so I've seen a lot of reviews of it. Um, so it's inspired by a true story. Mm -hmm. Certainly, sex trafficking is an issue, uh, particularly internationally. Um, Jim Cavazel is, I think, I would describe him not necessarily as a conspiracy. I don't know. I haven't seen that he's spread conspiracy theorists. I have no idea whether that's true or not. He's certainly a religiously inclined actor, mm -hmm. so he's well-liked by some on the right. Um, he played Jesus Christ in The Passion of the Christ. Mm -hmm. He's spoken very openly about his religious inclination. I think he's a terrific actor. Count of Monte Cristo movie, so good. Person of interest, I'm a big fan. Okay. Um, anyway, so this movie uh, is doing really well. A uh, lot of money made on it. A conservative, it, but it, it's kind of like my understanding from reading the reviews is that it, there's nothing really all that like conservative in it, or even particularly religious in mm -hmm. it. It's a fairly straightforward action movie about rescuing these children. Mm -hmm. And it's like acquiring a conservative kind of um, narrative is forming around it because, like, and conservatives are saying that's because um, the mainstream wants to associate the, um, the, the, the pursuit of sex traffickers with QAnon because QAnon is obsessed with sex trafficking. So it's like... Everyone is trying to pick their opinion of the film based on what their politics are, but actually the film is just like a straightforward... I've got to say, I've heard no one in real life say anything one way or the other about this film. This is a lot of... So the, that Tim Ballard person was on Tim Pool's show mm -hmm. the other day. So, I mean, the fact that Tim Pool invited him, him to be on shows that obviously there's this substantial conservative interest in it. I think that's fine. I, I mean, if, if conservatives feel a particular affinity for this film, um, if there is a more conservative audience for this film, that seems like a perfectly fine thing. But it, it does feel a little like there's an attempt to create some outrage, like liberals hate this and Republicans love it. I don't, I've never heard of this film, and I've never heard a person in my life, liberal, conservative, otherwise, mention this film. I'm surprised by how popular it is, given how little... Mm. I've heard about it in terms of advertising or seeing a, um, a trailer or anything like that, but I'm not, I don't know it's why like, I'd be it's upset like a, about it. It's like it. the very online, online right people are saying, oh, you don't want to see this movie? What's, what's up with that, groomer? And the very <laughs> online liberal people are saying, oh, you went and saw that, QAnon? Do you know what I mean? Like, if you if you say, but so. people are probably just seeing the movie because it's an action movie. And I mean, I, I'm reflecting on some. Um, very popular, uh, noteworthy from an awards perspective, uh, just films about sex abuse and things like that. I mean, there was the Mark uh, Ruffalo uh, 
Catholic Church movie that did very well Spotlight. a number of years ago, Spotlight. I mean, was that politicized? I mean, I guess it was because of the implications about the church, but mm -hmm. it seems like many people, because most people are good and don't like sex trafficking or child abuse, are going to be interested in stories about folks who heroically try to prevent those things from happening. So it wouldn't seem to be a political issue at all unless either actors in the movie or people who are in politics try to make it into a political story. I mean, I'm reading the description here in that Slate article, and it says, Sada Freedom starts with the abduction of two happy young Honduran children, a brother and a sister, are stolen from their father by a former beauty queen after being tricked into auditioning for a non-existent youth talent agency. They are placed in a van with other children and shipped off as freight to Colombia. Um, they're flown to Tijuana, where a leering American man is played, uh, paid to transport him across the border. border. And this is where the sibling story intersects with Ballard's, uh, uh, who works in the, in the movie at the Department of Homeland Security and pursues sex traffickers. I mean, that's not necessarily my kind of movie in terms of it being like a action film, it sounds mm -hmm. like, sort of. But it's hard for me to really grasp why this is of particular political note outside of perhaps this actor being controversial himself. Yeah, I, I'm re so this is a headline from The Independent. The controversial child, child sex trafficking movie that's become a, like a surprise hit. Like, is it a surprise that it would be? It's a straightforward have action movie? Have you seen movie? a trailer and is for it, it? Yeah, I've seen it. Where have you Just, seen a trailer for it? You can watch the trailer for it. No, 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 but like in your life, is it like it. popping up in your feet? Because, you know, let's compare it to Barbie Oppenheimer. Yeah. I, you can't look anywhere without seeing advertisements for Barbie Oppenheimer. Maybe that's my own. I'm obviously well, right. I think in my some own bubble. on the right would say, and I don't know if this is the case, saying it's being suppressed, or the mainstream doesn't want you to pay attention to this hmm. because they don't want you to think QAnon was right about anything. Again, even though that Tim Ballard, again the creator of this movie, he has repeatedly said this has nothing to do with QAnon. I think maybe he said in the past in some interview, like, well, like if. If QAnon caused people to become wary of child sex trafficking and that causes them to, you know, look up my work or something and then be presented with with real information, that would be a good thing. But like he's not, you know, advancing, not validating things that QAnon believes. But it's again, it's being associated with QAnon for no reason, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I'm seeing the Washington Post covering it as QAnon and Sound of Freedom both rely on tired Hollywood tropes. That's by Noah Bertoleski, who is not my favorite take haver. Tirewood, uh, tired Hollywood tropes. Yes, that's something that only QAnon promotes. <laughs> what? Uh, many critics have linked Sound of Freedom. Oh, that's Berlatsky? Yeah. Oh. To the pro-Trump QAnon conspiracy cult, they've also been startled by its mainstream success, but the truth is that the conspiratorial right and the Hollywood default aren't that different, which is why perhaps our polity has had such difficulty reject rejecting QAnon, Trump, and fascism. I mean, okay. Yeah. I, <laughs> No, uh, Noah Belatsky's writing is, well, I won't get into it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm looking for the substantiation of I've why the movie is. I've had a lot of differences is, with him over the years, but. Is it, they're saying it's trafficking in QAnon's conspiracy theories only because QAnon is Because QAnon also in child, says there's child sex trafficking, and this movie is about child sex trafficking. Do these people think that QAnon invented child sex trafficking? That child sex trafficking isn't a thing that happens? Maybe um, foreign agents likely of Russian origin. That's, that's the reason that, you're, uh, that people are talking about it, because they want you to talk about this. 
or they don't want you to talk about well, it. Well, they're, they're being, I don't know. This yeah. feels like the most manufactured controversy, sorry, controversy in the history of all time. I'm sure I'll watch out of curiosity when it moves to streaming services. Um, until then, you know, let us know what you think of the movie. Are you and let us know what your politics are as mm -hmm. you weigh in. Are you someone who who stumbled into it because it looked like a fun action film, um, but aren't necessarily especially right leaning, and you liked it? Did you not like it? Are you a conservative who liked it? Vice versa. I mean, do you think that politics matters? at all in your enjoyment of what seems to be a pretty straightforward sort of a tale here. People can just like things or not like them and yeah. nothing to do with politics. <laughs> novel novel thought. Try that out sometime. <laughs> all right, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, journalist Michael Schellenberger will be joining us to talk more about bioweapons research and RFK Jr.'s claims. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We spent special psychic times <laughs> in our separate getting morning routines to see yes. if my tie would match your dress. Yes. And it worked. We, we were successful. We'll see how well our ESP does tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>